This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Tonight, the lesson's title is uh, pretty dramatic. Um, the other side of the story, the dangers of storytelling. I feel like you need a bum, bum, bum after that. But um, Maybe it would be more reasonable to call it something like the pitfalls of storytelling or something like that. But um, we have spent a lot of time exploring the positives of storytelling. And tonight I just want to balance that a little bit with a few words of warning. Uh, some things that we do need to be aware of and watchful for in this uh, arena of storytelling. So let's pray together, and then we'll take a look at a biblical story together. Father, thank you for the comprehensive nature of your word. Uh, thank you for how it shares wisdom um, with us to help us have a, a mature and balanced view of things. And I thank you for the fact that that often means... Um, that there are things that we need to hold in tension, uh, where we need to see both the positive and negative sides of something, and, and uh, by the leading of your spirit, strike the right balance. And I believe that's the case as we look at this subject of storytelling, and I just pray that you'd help us to strike that balance in the right way. Help us see the benefits, but beware of the, the pitfalls. Just guide us through this time. Uh, help us be led by your spirit and informed by your word and uh, make us better servants for you because of our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. They are a sorry sight, this group of road-weary men. They're dusty, their clothes and their shoes are nearly worn through. They've braved the long road, they tell the Israelite leader Joshua and come all this way in order to secure the good favor of him and his powerful nation. As they make their plea, they're, they're very deferential, both to Joshua and to the God of Israel. From a very far country, they tell Joshua, thy servants are come because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond Jordan, to Sihon king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan, which was at Ashtaroth. Wherefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spake to us, saying, Take victuals with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say unto them, We are your servants. Therefore now, make ye a league with us. They know that there's some suspicion surrounding their arrival, so they present proof that they are indeed from a country that is far from where the Israelite encampment and the recent Israelite military conquests have happened. The ambassadors present their dry, moldy bread, and they tell Joshua, This our bread we took hot for our provision out of our houses on the day we came forth to go unto you. They hold up old wine bottles that have clearly had to be repaired, and they affirm, These bottles of wine which we filled were new, and behold, they be rent. And these are garments, and our shoes are become old by reason of the very long journey. It's an impress impressive collection of evidence. Joshua and the other Jewish leaders pass around the old bread and the wine bottles. They eye the worn-out clothes of their guests. They confer and agree 
that these ambassadors share a compelling story. So Joshua decides to make an alliance with them, promising peace between the nation of Israel and this mysterious far-off nation. Well, it only takes three days for Joshua to discover that the visiting ambassadors have made fools of him and his advisors. The Israelite leaders have just promised not to invade the territory of the Gibeonites. This is a stretch of land that lies only three days' journey from where they are in camp. They've been taken in by some fabricated evidence and a well-told story. Not every story is a good story. And not every well-told story is told for the right reason. Just like they can be a powerful tool for good, stories can also be a powerful tool for evil. The Gibeonites give us a shiny example of a well-fabricated story used to fool someone into believing a lie. So if we're telling stories, we have some things to watch out for. But before we dive into some specific warnings, I want to take a slight detour. As I prepared for this class, um, not just tonight, but for the class in general, I thought, you know it would be interesting? To do a word study. I could look at all the words for stories that are used in the Bible and see what those passages have to say. And I thought maybe, depending on what material is there, that could kind of serve as the framework for this class. And so I, I decided I'm going to do a word study. So I did it. I looked for all the words I could find of, I could find, I could think of, sorry. I looked for words in the Bible that have to do with the story, okay? So I searched for several different words, um, and I didn't find much, but I found a few words that are translated in our English Bible as story, tale, or fable. And as we work our way through the lesson tonight, I want to share those findings with you. Uh, I found one word in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word midrash. It's, only, it's used only twice. Don't worry, this isn't going to be on the quiz. Um, both of these times are in the book of Second Chronicles. And both times this word is translated story. Um, interestingly enough, these are the only two times in our English Bible that you find the word story. Second uh, Chronicles 13.22 makes reference to the story of the prophet Iddo. Second Chronicles 24.27 mentions the story of the book of the kings. And these are both historical records that are outside scripture, um, but they were considered by the author of Second Chronicles to be reputable sources for information. Um, and I think it's pretty cool that the Bible mentions these stories. I would love to read the story of the prophet Iddo and the story of the book of the kings. It'd be interesting to, to read those things just to help us with our understanding of scripture and understanding the times and what was going on. Unfortunately, they've both been, been lost to history. Um, but there are several references in Scripture to apocryphal books like this. It's an interesting little tidbit, but let's be honest, we don't really learn anything about how God views stories from those references. They're pretty neutral. All right? They're out there. God doesn't really have anything to say about them, except Scripture says you can find out more if you go and read in this book. So I turned to the New Testament, and there I found two more words of interest. The first was leros. We find this word only once in Scripture, and that's in Luke chapter 24, verse 11. Now in Luke 24, women come to the tomb where Jesus' body was laid. 
But of course, the stone is rolled away from the door of the tomb. There's no body. And they're greeted by two men in glowing robes who tell them that Jesus Christ is risen. Well, the women are overjoyed, and they run to tell the apostles all about it. And verse 11 tells us that when the apostles heard their report, their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Idle tales, that's that word leros. So leros means basically nonsense, a foolish story, or one that's impossible to believe. And the apostles think that what they're being told is either a fabrication or a dream. Now, that term doesn't really reflect positively on the idea of stories. But this negative use of the word tales reminds us of something important for us to remember, and that is that stories aren't perfect. Now, like I said earlier, all story, not all stories are good stories. In this case, in Luke 24, we know these women were telling the truth. The story they're telling to the apostles is true. But we're also reminded by that verse that there is such a thing as idle tales. Now, have you ever heard an idle tale before? Um, somebody told, tells you something, and either because of objective proof, or just because what they're saying seems so utterly impossible, you are convinced that they must have either made it up or they're delusional. All right, you ever had that experience before? Um, my three-year-old son is great at idle tales. All right, <laughs> He'll talk about these, these thrilling and harrowing adventures that he's had. Um, he'll talk about you know, being in a race or fighting dinosaurs or all kinds of crazy stuff. And uh, you've got you to gotta love his imagination, but it's clear to my wife and I that all of this is obviously just made up in his head. All right? They're idle tales. They're, they hold no truth. They hold no substance. I love storytelling. I think storytelling is great. I'm sure that's come across over these past ten weeks. But if you, like me, get bitten by the storytelling bug, you start to fall in love with this idea of storytelling, just remember, it's not a silver bullet. It's not the answer to everything. Nor is it always even a good thing. We've been looking at this whole subject from the perspective of those who are trying to be effective communicators for God. We've been looking at um, the part that stories can play in helping us to be effective communicators for the Lord. But let me ask you an important question. Are those who are communicating for, as those who are communicating for God to others, where does our power lie? Well, it doesn't lie in our imagination or in our creativity, in our delivery, or in our insight into the human mind. We can speak with the tongues of angels and still be nothing. Our power does not lie in storytelling or in any other method or technique. Our power lies with God's word and God's spirit. Think with me for a moment about just two of the many scriptural storytelling examples we've mentioned so far. So think about Nathan, 2 Samuel 12. We talked about that powerful story that Nathan used to confront David about his sin. But note the first seven words of 2 Samuel 12. The Bible says in verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. 
That's the key right there. Nathan was not speaking for himself, and Nathan was not speaking in his own power. He was giving David the message God had given him to share. Now, I don't know if God gave him the whole message, or if there was some degree of Nathan saying, how am I going to present this message to David, and he needed to use his imagination and figure that out. I don't know. But I do know that the fact that Nathan was sent by God was the true source of his power. It wasn't that he was a great speaker. It wasn't that he had this thing down. It was that God had sent him. That's why his communication was powerful. How about Stephen in Acts 7? He, he used there the story of Israel's history to bring to light the hearts of the Jewish leaders who are listening to him and to cause them to consider Christ. But what marked Stephen during that whole encounter? Well, Acts 7.54 tells us once he ended his, his message to them, how the people responded to that. It says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Stephen was full of the Holy Ghost and he was looking to God. That's where his power came from. That's why his message had such an impact on the people who were hearing him. Yes, I think he used an effective means, but at the end of the day, the true source of his power is the fact that he was filled with God's Spirit. Now, I don't mean by any of this to undermine all that we've done up to this point in the class, but I do want to be clear that storytelling is not some magic formula or a secret ingredient that'll suddenly turn you into a master communicator and suddenly lives will be transformed around you. Storytelling is just a tool. It's a good tool, and I recommend you use it often, but it's still just a tool. If you want to be powerful and effective for God, you need to be using that tool of storytelling and every other tool at your disposal only in service to God's word and in submission to God's spirit. Don't get carried away with the method and lose sight of what's really at the heart of being an effective communicator for the Lord. But we haven't finished our word study yet. All right, We've looked at a couple words, but there's another New Testament word for story. And this one is found in several different passages. It's the word muthos. If you're an etymology fan, you might notice right off the word in modern parlance that comes from this Greek word. It's the word myth. Alright, muthos refers to fictional stories or fables. And what does scripture say about these fables? Well, it's not great. Uh, in 1 Timothy, Paul warns Timothy in chapter 1 not to give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. In chapter 4, he says, But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. In 2 Peter 1.16, Peter pronounces, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In all of these passages, these fables are seen as something that's unhelpful 
and even dangerous. <coughs> There's something to be avoided. And these passages hint at another aspect of storytelling that we need to be aware of, and that is that stories can be manipulative. Now, leading up to the Supreme Court decision to overrule Roe v. Wade, there was a lot of storytelling that was going on. I don't know if you noticed it, but I noted how both sides of the debate used storytelling front and center in their messaging. So those who were against abortion used stories told by women who deeply regret getting an abortion. Uh, they'll use stories from women who are so glad they decided not to have an abortion. They'll use stories from women who are abortion attempt survivors. And they'll also use hypothetical stories about what the lives of the aborted could have been. They use statistics and medical data too, but the stories are so much more powerful and compelling. Uh, sure, the facts are important, but the stories, that's what really grabs us. Well, on the other side of the debate, they use lots of stories as well. Pro-abortion advocates uh, will use stories told by women who are glad they got an abortion. They'll use uh, stories of women who say they wouldn't have dreamed of giving birth to their baby because of the traumatic circumstances under which the child was conceived. As the Supreme Court decision neared, we, heard, we got a lot of hypotheticals from the pro-abortion side. There were hypotheticals about what women might do, do if abortions were not legally widely available. There were hypotheticals about women losing their health and even their lives because of being forced to continue with a pregnancy. There was this one particular ad that became notorious that was put out by a guy who was running for Congress. And in this ad, a woman is having a peaceful dinner with her husband and two children when the peace is suddenly shattered by a visit from two police officers who have come to arrest her. They end up pulling guns and then they handcuff her in front of her family and put her in the back of the squad car. And what is her crime? She had an abortion. And the ad affirms that this is the future we have to look forward to if anti-abortion legislation is passed. Now, the whole ad is honestly laughable because none of the legislation being considered by states to limit or stop abortion was calling for criminal charges for women who got abortions. Like many of the hypotheticals, it was not firmly grounded in facts. But still, for many people who watched the ad, it was horrifying and compelling painting a picture of a future that they couldn't stand to see come, convincing them that that much more that they needed to vote pro-abortion. Now, I, I'm sure there's no question about this, but I am against abortion, and I am for legislation that promotes the unique value of all life and works to protect innocent life. But it's interesting to me to see how both sides of this issue have used stories so much to try to convince people that their position is the right one. And you know, often when we see an argument like this, we tend to look at the side we agree with, and we see the stories they tell and, and, and how they pull on our heartstrings, and we say, wow, that's effective messaging. That really makes the truth compelling. 
Then we look at the other side and watch them doing the same thing, and we say, that's manipulative. It's obscuring the facts. We can kind of have a double standard sometimes. What I'm saying is we need to be careful. We need to think about the ethics of our storytelling. Are we being effective and compelling, or are we being manipulative? Are we helping people to think and engage with the truth, or are we preying on their emotions? A good story ought to hit you here, but it also needs to engage you here. We're talking about engaging people with the truth, not just making them feel a certain way. If you're if, if we're using stories for manipulation and just trying to make people feel a certain way with our stories so that they'll agree with us, then we're no better than all the companies that are putting out story-based TV ads that tug at your heartstrings to get you to buy a product or use a service. Um, that's, that's basic marketing right there. Um, appeal to people's emotions and you can get them to, to, to buy your product. Well, that's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to, to uh, force people emotionally into a corner because we're just communicating so effectively. So we need to be ethical. We need to be careful. We need to make sure that as we're using stories to communicate, we're not just trying to move people emotionally. We're engaging their minds and their hearts with the truth. So be ethical. Don't misuse stories. Don't manipulate people with your stories. Keep it all solidly grounded in the Bible. And that takes us to our last point and the last two Bible references in our word study. Now, you remember the, uh, the last Greek word, muthos, the Greek word for myth or a fictional tale or a fable? Well, we find it two more times in the New Testament. We find it in Titus 1. There in verse 14, Paul tells Titus to warn the people in Crete not to give heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned onto fables. This third warning is the most sobering warning of all. And that is that stories can replace scripture. Now, both of those two passages we just looked at talked about stories as something that can be instrumental in turning people away from the truth. So what does it mean to turn away from the truth to fables? What does that mean? What is Paul talking about here? Well, it is possible, and it's even tempting, to leave scripture behind in favor of stories. I mean, the Bible is boring, right? But stories are interesting. The Bible gets old. But stories are fresh. The Bible can be inconvenient. But you can shape a story to focus on just what you want it to focus on, and you can edit out the objectionable elements. Do you get the allure? Do you see how careful we have to be, both as speakers and as listeners? 
both as those seeking to share the truth of God and those seeking to receive it, stories can be really appealing. <coughs> but sometimes that appeal can end up drawing us away from Scripture instead of drawing us towards the truth of Scripture. Uh, and I have three specific warnings I want to share with you tonight um, under this heading. And these are areas where focusing on stories can lead us into very dangerous ground. So first, don't neglect the whole. Um, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Anyone? Favorite book of the Bible? John, Psalms. All right. Esther. All right. Um, favorite verse? And you have a favorite verse? James 14. All right. Is it because it's your first name? Or? All right. <laughs> All right. I'll, okay, well, I'll just ask that you guys don't want to talk. That's okay. How many of you have a favorite verse? All right. Uh, favorite Bible character? Um, favorite attribute of God? Maybe. Um, what's your least favorite book of the Bible? Leviticus, all right. We have consensus. Um, least favorite character? A least favorite attribute of God? Well, you might not want to admit it in front of us, but, you know, there are subjects I like to preach on more than others. Uh, there are characteristics of God that I enjoy drawing attention to more than others. As we communicate through stories, often the temptation can be to just neglect the parts of Scripture we don't like as much. And we can focus on our favorite doctrines or our pet peeves or even uh, get up on our soapbox a little bit. And in the process, we can end up neglecting parts of God's Word. So don't let yourself pick and choose. You know, in Jonah 4, Jonah gets mad at God because God starts showing his merciful side instead of showing Nineveh his wrathful judgment. And Jonah doesn't like that. He wants fire and brimstone. And God has to bring Jonah face to face with that aspect of who he is, with his mercy. And he uses circumstances and his own words to help Jonah come to terms with that reality. But, you know, we can be a lot like Jonah sometimes wanting to highlight certain aspects of God's character, certain aspects of God's word, and we can want to ignore the others, but we need to let the Bible slap us in the face a little bit and bring us face to face with those less comfortable elements of who God is and what he has said. And we're not going to use stories properly if we don't have the right relationship with God and with his word. So if we're thinking first about being dynamic communicators instead of first about the eternal realities of God and his truth, then we'll, we're going to end up coming to God's word looking for something that serves our purposes instead of seeking to truly know God and to speak from that. The more that I read and study scripture and try both to understand it and communicate it to others, the more convinced I am of the fact that no part of Scripture stands entirely alone. Each part of the Bible 
is dependent on every other part to make up the whole. You cannot truly know Scripture without striving to know all of Scripture. The Bible is not the Bible without Leviticus. We know who God is, not by just a collection of verses, but by a consideration of the whole of the testimony of his word. So don't let a focus on stories and on delivery and on being a a great communicator lead us away from the entirety of scripture. Uh, Next, don't slip into moralism. Uh, Beware of this trap. You know, it's easier than you might think to start preaching moralism instead of true biblical Christianity. And when I say preaching, I'm not talking about getting up at the pulpit. I'm just talking about proclaiming God's word. All right, I should probably choose a different word. But when we're seeking to share the truth, often it's easier than we might think to slip into moralism. You know, if you visit a Christian bookstore chain, I would guess that probably at least half of the books displayed as new releases would be founded not primarily on scriptural truth, but on moralism. Sure, they'd have Bible verses in them. But if you really dug down, you'd realize that they're founded on moralistic principles. Now, what is moralism? We've talked about this, but it's the idea that life works better if you're a nice person, so be a nice person. So people like friendly people. So you should be friendly. Liars end up without any friends. So don't be a liar. People who steal stuff end up in jail. So don't steal stuff. People who give money to the church will have all their needs met. So give money to the church. Now you can dress all of that up and make it sound really spiritual. But at its heart, it's all very man-centered. It's very selfish. It's very self-serving. A truly biblical view looks to God as the creator and owner of all and then bows before him humbly and says, I'm here to serve. That's, that's the right view on how the world works. Not, let me tell you what's going to give you a good life and, and that's what you ought to follow. When we get into this this storytelling, and, and we're using that as a, as a method a lot, we've got to be careful because stories can quickly start to have morals instead of supporting and explaining that which is truly biblical. So watch out for moralism. And, you know, I feel like this can be especially tempting with children. We can try to make children want to behave in a certain way by telling them that something awful will happen if they don't do the right thing, or something wonderful will happen if they do the right thing. Think the boy who cried wolf. What lesson do children learn about the truth and lies from that story? Does the boy who cried wolf teach them that God loves the truth and hates lies? And so we ought to be truth lovers too. Not so much. The boy who cried wolf teaches them that children who lie a lot get ignored. And also they get eaten by wolves. (laughs) And who wants to get eaten by a wolf? 
That might be motivating, but is it biblical? At its heart, is it teaching biblical truth? So don't let storytelling lead you into moralism. Be sure that it's founded in the truth of Scripture and not just in, hey, you want a nice life? Let me tell you something about having a nice life. Finally, watch out because stories, as Paul warned, can lead us into error. You know, I was reading a book about being an effective communicator, and it was a totally secular book, um, but I enjoyed it. I, found, I think I found some helpful lessons in it. But anyway, it was funny to me that in this secular book, the author, multiple times, mentioned a well-known preacher. Um, this preacher, of course, professes to be a Christian. He has a huge following, and several times the author drew attention to how effectively this man uses stories in his sermons. So this is a secular author saying, here's a great example of how you can use stories as an effective communicator. And he's pointing to this preacher. And he has a point, because this guy knows how to communicate. He can really speak. He can be motivating and compelling, and he can move a crowd. But the preacher that he was referring to is Joel Osteen. A man whose doctrine is clearly askew. Now, Osteen preaches in a certain way, with a certain message, and his message and his manner are very appealing, very inviting. People are drawn to the feel-good nature of what he says, and to the self-empowering solutions that he presents to life's problems. The issue is, he tends to leave sin out of the picture. So to Osteen, man is struggling and needs to be empowered. But scripture tells us that man is dead and needs to be made alive. Now, I don't hold a candle to Joel Osteen's speaking ability. But sadly, it seems that maybe his own smooth delivery has helped to lead him astray. Now, I don't know what might have happened to him if his doctrine was ever any more on target than it is today. I don't know. But sadly, a desire to be an effective communicator and to grow in the ability to move people has led many people to start to massage scripture into a more convenient mold instead of letting scripture mold them and their methods. We need to beware because if we get too focused on the method and too focused on being effective and moving people, we can end up far from the truth. We've got to keep scripture central. We've got to keep ourselves obedient to the Holy Spirit. That's where the power comes from. That's going to th what's going to make us effective. And storytelling is just one tool, one method that we can use in that pursuit for God's glory. So I hope that you will grow and work to grow as an effective storyteller. But I just wanted to give you a little word of warning as I prepare to release you. <laughs> Um, stories, like most powerful tools, can be used for good or ill. And I trust that moving forward, it may be said of all of us, 
that we only ever use stories for God's glory and to communicate his truth. It's, I think, two days after Christmas 2022, and there's a cold snap. It's unusually cold for around here. And there are a couple of nights there where it gets cold enough that there's some real concern about pipes freezing or bursting. And so this particular night, I leave the faucet in the kitchen dripping, and I open the cabinet doors below the sink uh, just to be on the safe side. And in the morning, everything seems to be okay. The water's running at first. As the morning goes on, it becomes more and more apparent that our water pressure is not what it ought to be. Something is off. And it's bitterly cold outside. And I really don't want to have to go out there for any reason. I'm starting to think that I'm going to have to get down in the crawl space underneath the house to look for frozen pipes. And there is nothing inside me that even remotely looks forward to that. And I think to myself, it would be a whole lot easier if we just pretend there isn't a problem. We can just go ahead, go about our lives, act like the water pressure is just fine, and eventually it'll come back. Um, just give it some time. Things tend to work themselves out with time, right? But I want to be a good caretaker for my family, so I start to prepare myself. I put on warmer clothes, and I fortify my mind to crawl, army crawl in the nasty, freezing space under the house. But still... Maybe I don't have to go straight to the crawl space. I can check something else out first. So I get the, um, the water shut off key and I march out to the front yard. My plan is to shut off the water to our house and then watch the gauge to see if it continues to move. Theoretically, if the gauge continues to move, we've got a leak. If it doesn't, we're good. So I go out there to uh, start that process. And while I'm out there, I look over and my next door neighbor is also trying to get to his water gauge. And he asked to borrow my key, and I, I lend it to him. But as we talk, he explains that he just talked to the neighbor across the street, and they're both having water pressure issues too. So that doesn't sound like frozen pipes. Something else must be going on. And so I return to the house encouraged. Whatever's going on, it doesn't appear to be an issue that will involve my crawling underneath our house in the freezing uh, weather, or us dishing out large amounts of money for a plumbing repair. Well, I talked to the neighbor again a little later, and he tells, he tells me that he has called the city. And they told him that work is being done on a water main, and the water pressure would be affected until the repair was finished. Sure enough, uh, before long, our water pressure is back, and I happily refrain from leaving the warm comfort of my house for the rest of the day. So, the lesson for you today is if you have a problem and you don't feel like figuring out what the problem is and what you might need to do to fix it, don't worry about it. Just leave it alone and it will sort itself out. Most problems do. Save yourself the sweat and the worry and just pretend nothing's the matter because most problems just solve themselves. You just have to give them a little time. Now, that's a very appealing moral to a story for me, because I like ignoring problems. <laughs> My frozen pipe scare story seems to back up the assertion that ignoring the problem is a good way to go. I could have stayed inside in the warmth all day, 
and not done a thing, and the water pressure would have come back. But is that how we really ought to look at it? Is that a Christian way to look at problems? Well, no. Ignoring problems is not very wise. And more importantly, it's not Christ-like. Now, that's a silly example of using a story to support a foolish idea. But sadly, there are many much less silly stories that are being used every day to support foolish and downright false positions and beliefs. So let's be careful that our voices are not added to that number. God and his word always come first. Storytelling is just a tool to use as we're seeking to serve him and stay faithful. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.